Welcome back, folks, to the RF Factor. This is episode 18. We're going to be interviewing Tom Hogan. But before we do, I just want to welcome everybody back for 2022. This is our first uh, podcast of the year. Uh, very excited. Pete, how are you doing today? Doing good, Ray. Doing good. But uh, we got another bald guy today, Ray. What is that? <laughs> hey, hey it's fair, style. Ray and I, we're not bald. We have shaved heads. Well, I'm a shaved head guy. I mean, <laughs> that's a very good point. Is hey, that Tom, like a, a cult. Yeah. <laughs> only so many yeah. guys who have perfect shaped heads. That's the way it that's, goes. I know. That's I right. got too many bumps. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Hey, Tom, we're excited to have you on. Um, and I would say in the green room here that you and I had. Uh, come across each other back when uh, you were with uh, Chester County as uh, uh, the, what I like to call the head honcho there. And I was uh, with the state police. I was a lieutenant colonel then, and I attended uh, many of uh, your meetings uh, on a crime that you were hosting. Uh, really appreciated your leadership then, uh, moving people in the right direction as it related to crime control strategies. Uh, but then, of course, I retired. I move on. And then I guess about six or seven months ago, I'm, uh, I'm writing an article and I'm doing some research. And of course, I come across uh, your writing. And what I was really excited about is uh, you use this term ping pong murders. And it was like the absolute best description that I could, uh, th that you could actually visualize as it relates to retaliatory shootings that we see so often in the street where uh, today's victim is uh, tomorrow's shooter. As long as they get out of the hospital and they're patched up, and you know, fortunately for medical technology, it's putting people, uh, it's fixing them up, but it's putting them back on, on the street, and that cycle of violence uh, continues. And uh, when I saw you write that, that's when I had reached out for you, you know, several months ago, and I've been haunting you since to come on board. But uh, I'm glad we kind of waited because I've been. Uh, just a huge fan of, of your Substack, and we'll, we'll get to talk about that. I'll let you uh, describe that uh, in short order. You've been very prolific writing about uh, violence, gun violence, and, and strategies and mechanisms uh, to curtail that. So welcome aboard. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. I love reading the, uh, the RF Substack that you guys put out. And, uh, you know, I'm doing some of the same stuff that you guys are. You're looking for common sense answers. Um, as one of my uh, as one of my brothers always says, if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. So keep using it. <laughs> very good, very good. Hey, so can I can I kick this off by maybe just asking you to tell us your story? And I say that because when you look at your background, um, you're you're quite storied in where the bases that you've touched, and and certainly the experiences that you've uh, engaged in. Uh, I also like on your Substack where you uh, deem yourself a Stoic, which I think is really cool. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But maybe you could tell us your story um, as it uh, unfolded over the last uh, 20, 30 years and where it's gotten you right here. Sure. Um, I was actually born in the South Bronx. Uh, my parents wow. were still in school um, and we lived in a walk up. <laughs> I still remember growing, you know, growing up there. Um, but the, uh, they quickly got me out of there and I ended up growing, uh, growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 
I've got uh, five brothers and sisters, um, and they are all over the place between academics and the military. And um, both my parents are professors. Um, so uh, I went to Dartmouth and actually played basketball there. Um, and then I went to UVA for law school. I was one of those poor kids who had so much debt that uh, that I had to go immediately to work for a huge firm. I did. Uh, I went to work for Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, which is just a gigantic international firm. And I did complex litigation and white collar defense. Great training ground because, you know, when you're representing Exxon and there are billions of documents, there's no case that looks too big to you after that. Um, wow. And then uh, from there, and I told them when I came in, once I pay off all my student loans, I'm going to be a prosecutor. And they were like, that's not going to happen. We've got you. Thank God. Uh, and, you know, at six years, they told me you're two years from making partner. And I said, I've paid off all my student loans. I'm going off to be a prosecutor. And they said I was insane. Um, but I went to the DA's office, became an assistant district attorney, tried everything from DUIs to, uh, to homicides. Um, got to know the local police. They invited me out on raids and SWAT operations, and it was tons of fun. You know, I was young and stupid, <laughs> um, but I got to see a lot of what the police did day to day, and we tried a lot of cases. 9-11 hit, and uh, I got called up uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia to become a federal prosecutor, um, eventually specialized in terrorism. Um but did, you know, a lot of drugs and white collar crime and, and violent crime at the same time. Um, and then from there, went back into private practice because I had two little kids and my wife said I was never home. And then they came to me and said, look, we'd like you to run for district attorney in Chester County. You can run your own shop. And uh, I agreed to do that. Ran and served two years as Chester County DA. We created sort of a fusion between a federal prosecutor's office and a local prosecutor's office. Um, so we used a lot of the same federal tools that, that federal prosecutors use, but we mixed it in with doing those thousands and thousands of cases that have to be done at the local level. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Served my two terms. And during the last couple of years, I, you know, the office was running so well. We had so many people that were so good that it actually got kind of boring. Um, you know, we drove the violent crime rate down so far, all the gang guys knew that you stayed out of Chester County. Um, and I started looking at academic stuff. So next thing you know, I, I finished my second term and then went off to Penn to study, uh, statistics and, and computer science, get into the algorithms they use. And, you know, I still run a little private practice on the side where I'm representing clients in complex litigation, but I'm doing a lot of academic studying of what works and what doesn't uh, for crime. So, so Tom, turn on, turn on the TV news and uh, we, we, we see gangs of people uh, storming uh, a high end uh, a clothing store and just uh, having a, a supermarket sweep filling up car, uh, shopping carts and, and, and just going out uh, back into their cars without, without uh, any interaction. Um, we see 
We see people uh, pumping gas in their cars and, and, and getting shot at the gas station. We, 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 we see all this hear and hear about all this impunity, uh, criminals acting with impunity today. What's changed? Has something changed on, on the prosecutor side? Is something changed on the law enforcement side? What are your thoughts? Well, Pete, do you want the really big picture or do you want the, the, the granular picture? Let, let's, start, let's start at 30,000 feet and then we'll work our way down. Okay. At 30,000 feet, here's what happened. For 20 years, and you guys were involved with this, from 1995 to 2015, we pulled every lever we could because from 1966 to about, to, to about 1995, we had increasing crime. Um, and you guys remember what the New York was like when we had 2,000 homicides a year. Um, but over those 20 years, we really drove crime down. And we did so many different things from making sure that if you got caught with a gun and you were a felon, you went away for three to five years, even if you were Plaxico Burris and you shot yourself in the foot. Um, we created huge penalties for doing things like being a felon in possession of firearms. We went after the drug gangs hard. Um, we locked up, we probably locked up more people than we should have. Um, but in the course of locking up a lot of the, those people, we locked up a lot of the right people too and incapacitated them. Um, so over those 20 years from 1995 to 2015, we convinced the entire world that no matter what you did, crime would go down because it did for 20 years. And as a result, if crime's always going to go down, you know what? You don't need to arrest as many people because crime's going to go down even if you don't arrest them. And you don't need to lock them up for so long because crime's going to go down even if you let them out. And you can elect progressive prosecutors who promise not to lock people up because crime's going to go down no matter what. It was a huge mistake. Um, crime isn't going to always go down. It was like the tech bubble. People always thought that, you know, tech stocks, they'll always go up. So just keep buying them. Well, that wasn't true. And we got an enormous tech bubble exploding. Crime doesn't always go down. If you take your eye off the ball, then crime will start to go up. Violent crime started going up in 2015, and then it accelerated hard through the pandemic and the, the George Floyd protests. So that's what happened at the big picture level. At a much more granular level, um, you have these progressive prosecutors coming in, and they are openly telling people, I'm not prosecuting people. I am engaged in what's called deprosecution. Um, and Alvin Bragg in New York is a good example of that. He came in and said, look, if you get caught with a gun, you didn't shoot anybody, you didn't hit them, um, then I'm just going to charge you with the equivalent of being, uh, you know, somebody who's unlicensed to possess a firearm. You're going to get a misdemeanor and you're going to walk. If you rob a store um, and you don't shoot anybody, then you're going to get charged with misdemeanor larceny and you're going to get probation. If you are not caught actually dealing drugs, if we just catch you with, you know, two kilos of Coke, which we know is possession with intent to deliver, well, he's only going to charge them with possession. 
which is a misdemeanor, and they're not going to jail. That message hits the streets hard. People think that criminals don't pay attention to what prosecutorial and police policies are. They are incredibly sensitive to what we are willing to lock them up for and how long we're willing to lock them up for. Um, and when those things hit, that the criminals get the message and they react. They react rationally. If you're not going to lock me up for getting together with a bunch of my buddies and going in to steal a bunch of stuff from stores, then I'm going to do it. And what New York and Manhattan's about to find out is if we can rob people um, in armed robberies and not get banged hard when we get caught, because just because we didn't shoot anybody, if we're just going to get probation, you're going to see armed robbery rings running around Manhattan. So there's a simple message to the street. We're not locking you up. Criminals will respond to it. And they're responding to it right now. Now what do we now, what do we do? What, what's the answer now? <laughs> so it's interesting. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of writing a piece right now saying, here's the answer, because that's the big question. What do we do now? The good news is we went through to all of this. Uh, I mean, Ray, Pete, you guys and me, we went through this in the 80s and 90s. We figured out what works. So four things, four pillars is how we always refer to them. The first pillar is crime concentration. Crime is heavily concentrated in people, places, and times. In other words, if you go to your, your local police department, call in the patrol guys and say, give me the list of the top 10 guys most likely to kill or be killed. They'll come up with that list, no problem. No problem. And then you ask them, give me the 10 addresses that are the biggest problem in your jurisdiction. They'll give you the 10 addresses. Yep. And then you'll say, when is violent crime most likely to occur? And they'll laugh and say, July and August, hot nights, summertime, between 10 and 2 in the morning. And now you've got a roadmap. You start figuring out who those 10 guys are. You figure out who those 10 places are. And you, you goose up manpower during those times. There's your first pillar. You've got a roadmap. Second thing, you can't give up on drug trafficking investigations. You guys know that drug trafficking is Google. You want to find out who committed a murder? Call in a bunch of drug guys from that area, um, and the drug dealers will tell you who committed it because they've got great intelligence networks. Also, the drug guys are usually the guys involved in the murders. So you have to have that intelligence. That's the second pillar. Then you do precision policing. That's the third pillar, which is you know who the really violent criminals are, you know where they're hanging out, where they're committing their crimes. You know when they're doing it. You've got your drug intelligence coming in. Great. You go after them. You do gang takedowns. You do RICO takedowns. You do organizational takedowns. And you wipe those guys, the most dangerous guys, off the street. And then the fourth pillar is what we call vertical prosecution. And vertical prosecution means you have to have the prosecutors working with the police right from the get-go on these investigations. These are complex investigations. They'll be much better investigated if you have the police and prosecutors working together. Because one, you can have all the tools that the prosecutors and police bring when they're together. Two, they buy into things together. Um, if they're making decisions the whole way together, then they'll take the case all the way through conviction. 
if you split them up, if you use what we call horizontal prosecution, which is the police and agents work on one side and then just hand the case off to the prosecutors, the prosecutors are going to complain about what the police did and they might sell a case short. And the police are then going to complain about what the prosecutors did. And, you know, their reaction is going to be not to work quite as hard. So you pair the prosecutors and police up right from the get go and which, you know, the state police, local police do in bigger investigations, federal uh, prosecutors and federal agents do it all the time. And there you put those four pillars together and you will put a heavy stamp on the really violent criminals and the violent gangs, which is where most of these murders are coming from. That that was outstanding. Outstanding. You, you know, I, I, I'm going to send you a copy of my book when, when we get off, offline. The 13 critical tasks, an inside out approach to solving more gun crime. But, but, but when I hear you speak, I, everything I've written in my book parallels and dovetails with everything you've just said. But I want to pick up on one on the third pillar a second precision policing. Because look, when you listen to some of these um, enlightened, prosecutors, if you would, that you just you just described, they'll tell you that, um, well, um, we cast too wide a net. We, 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 we caught fish in that net that we didn't intend to catch. And we've, uh, it was unfair to people. And your term of precision policing, I think, and I'll, and I'll ask you this question, we have a number of tools at our disposal now. We have technology tools that help us develop much more accurate uh, crime gun intelligence, for example. We have the ability to trace the history of these guns and, 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 and manage this data in, in, a, in a, a database of crime guns. We have a ballistics technology that can link a number of crimes together, no matter where they occur in the country, uh, link a, a gun that we seize to a series of crimes, no matter where they occur in the country. And um, many other tools, DNA, um, uh, 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 everybody's home has a security camera now. There's license plate readers with all kinds of information. We have cell phone, cell phone tower, uh, 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 intrusion devices. So having said that, with, with the people that we have today and the processes we put in place and the technology that we have, we, we do a very good job now of precision policing where we're able to target the right people instead of casting a wide dragnet and picking up things we don't wanna pick up. Now we surgically identify the right people, the criminals that are that are hurting people. Do you think that we could change the minds of these prosecutors through precision policing? So some of these prosecutors, particularly ones who have never handled local prosecutions and the huge volume of them, they're just ideologues and they will never change their minds about the fact that we just lock too many people up and they don't want to lock people up. Everybody should be let go. Um, but some of them can change. The Brooklyn uh, district attorney, Eric Gonzalez, 
who's a very progressive district attorney, has looked around and whether it's because he's decided this is a better thing to do or because he has decided that he's going to get voted out of office if the murder numbers keep going up, he has fully bought into NYPD's precision policing through gang takedowns, which are really significant takedowns. He will, NYPD is targeting specific gangs in specific housing um, elements. Um, and they're figuring out these gangs are responsible for X number of murders and X number of shootings. And then they're taking out the gang's root and branch. Um, and Gonzalez has come out and said he's 100% behind it. And he's going to make sure those guys go away for a long period of time. So there you have a progressive prosecutor who has fully adopted it. Now in Philly, we have a progressive prosecutor named Larry Krasner, who, you know, I could walk in with a serial killer and he would walk him back out <laughs> um, and give him bail and explain to me that he's just been misunderstood. Um, and he would not buy into precision policing in any way, means or form. Um, so some of them can be convinced. A lot of them can't be. Uh, but it's a matter of, you know, will they accept reality? Um, because the academic studies clearly show that precision policing works. Um, real life, practical applications of this show that precision policing worked. We did this in the city of Coatesville, um, which is a violent city here in Chester County, which is like a slice of North Philly. We did it for seven years and we took a murder rate that went from about a hundred per a hundred thousand, which is incredibly high and dropped it down to almost zero. At the same time, we reduced our prison population down to 70% of what it was because we understood you don't need to lock up all these little fish. And we figured out who the little fish were. Prosecutors have gotten to be pretty good at sorting all that out. Um, so it's the ones who are way too far on the left who want to let everybody out. And the ones who are way too far on the right who want to lock everybody up who are causing the problems. It's that prosecutorial sweet spot where you're locking up the really bad people and the other folks, the small fish, they're getting arrested and they're getting convicted and they're getting put on supervision and they're getting counseling and they're getting rehab, um, you know, and you're building a record against them. But prosecutors in the middle are getting pretty good at this and have been for the last 20 years. So let's hope they're not blowing up the system. And some of these prosecutors, the progressives will learn. Others will not learn and the citizens they serve will suffer as a result. You know, Tom, it's usually the case that anything on the far, far right or anything on the far, far left is going to get you in trouble. And the answer, the right thing to do is usually somewhere in the middle. And I think that's what I hear you saying. Yes. And I always I have a standard political rule. If the far left and far right totally agree on something, then don't ever go along. With it. <laughs> because I mean, let's face it, the far left said we don't want to lock people up because prisons are really bad places and they're inhumane. The far right said, let's not lock anybody up because we can save a lot of money on prisons. And they, they, they both bought into let's let a lot of people out. So there's some blame to go around on both sides. I, I like that. I, I never I never looked at it that way, but I, I agree. I agree. Hey, Tom, what, what I'd like to tease out of this conversation as well is that I think many people 
feel that maybe the community uh, would be against precision policing. But I think the three of us have recognized that's absolutely not the case. The, the, the community actually welcomes this. And I know all three of us have, have had conversations with people in the communities that um, really appreciate when cops are acting, uh, law enforcement is acting this way to clean up the streets and doing it in a much more uh, precise manner. What's your thoughts on that? Best example I had was uh, we were announcing the result of a precision policing um, operation we called Operation Silent Night. And it was a in a predominantly black community that was overwhelmed with drug crime and violent crime. And um, the first question from the press was, isn't this just really a racist operation that's meant to take out young black men? Um, and I had the mayor of the city with me. And she said, Mr. Hogan, I'll take this question. <laughs> and I said, happily. And she stepped up to the microphone and said, what you people in the media don't understand is that these operations are protecting our community. They are protecting the good citizens of our city who just want a peaceful community from violent criminals who are going to do them harm. Not only that, but this operation is protecting those young men from themselves. They are either going to kill or be killed. If they are killed, we can never bring them back. If they kill, they are going to jail for the rest of their lives. This operation makes sure they never get to that point. So this is not a racist operation. This is meant to help everybody. And there were no more questions from the media that came anywhere near that coming from a black female mayor of a city. And that's a very strong message to be coming from that community. Wow. Wow. So Tom Hogan for Congress or what? <laughs> that mayor for Congress, she was great. She was a, she was a dynamo. Uh, you want to tell us the city? Uh, no, no, you could probably <laughs> look it up, but, uh, you know, I don't want to hang her out uh, politically. She has well, her own. Well, God bless her and good luck to her. We'll, we'll say yeah. that much. Absolutely. And we're starting to see some of that um, in Philadelphia. Former Mayor Mike Nutter, um, who was a moderate Democratic mayor, came out and very strongly attacked um, Larry Krasner, the Philadelphia DA, and said, look, your white wokeness is killing black citizens. Your idea of letting everybody loose is killing, and Mayor Nutter's, a, now he described himself as an elderly black man, your policies are killing my people. They are killing the black and brown people of Philadelphia because it's not the rich folks in Philly who are dying, it's the poor minority communities who are dying. And he came out very strongly. It was a very powerful message. And I hope it resonates with the, the black and Hispanic community in the city because they're the ones who are suffering. Your, your four pillars, Tom, where, where can people read about them? Are they published anywhere? Uh, no, I'm in the midst of drafting it right now uh, because it's a question that people have asked me over and over again. Um, you know. It's easy to critique um, what some of these folks, these progressive mayors and progressive DAs are doing, but let's talk in serious terms about how we would turn this around. So I said, I can, you know, I'll give you five or 6,000 words and 
in very plain terms, explain how it works. What's it going to be an op-ed piece somewhere? Uh, I suspect it will be a, uh, an academic piece um, for uh, City Journal, for the Manhattan Institute. Outstanding. Hey, so, Tom, tell us about Gunfire and Tears, your subdeck, and uh, what, what led you to, to move in that direction, and particularly the name. Uh, Gunfire and Tears. Um, so this is actually from uh, the chief of the county detectives, Kevin Dykes, um, who, Ray, you probably met. Um, he was a yep. Pennsylvania state trooper, and then he became chief of my county detectives. Um, and Kevin has worked everything. I mean, he's worked undercover drugs. Um, his, uh, you know, he rose up to doing all sorts of white collar investigations. He was promoted. He's just a, a great investigator and a great guy. Um, but somebody was describing a, a horrible situation involving multiple gangs and drugs and, and, uh, and the usual arguments between gang members over women and turf and money. And somebody said, well, how did it all end up? And Kevin said it ended up just like it always does, gunfire and tears. And Gunfire and Tears, I think, may have been the name of the, the DA softball team for a while. <laughs> but Gunfire and Tears just very accurately uh, encompasses what is the result of all of this urban chaos. Um, so I chose the name. I cleared it with, uh, with Kevin Dykes. Um, and what I write about is generally things that are going on in the criminal justice system. Sometimes it's legal issues, sometimes it's police issues. And I try to take it on in terms that the general public will understand. Um, because I always complain when I'm working with the academics and they're talking about heterogeneity and salient points and heteroscedasticity. <laughs> and I'm like, nobody understands that, you guys. Broken Windows by Wilson and Kelling was so successful because people could read it and understand it. So sometimes I take very complex statistical issues and try to present it to people in ways that are straightforward, um, that they can understand. And sometimes I take them behind the scenes of what really goes on in law enforcement, which a lot of people don't get, um, and explain what's going on there and why certain decisions are made. And it's just a way of, of getting my thoughts out and working with some other people. Um, you guys may know Gary Tuggle, who was the, uh, the SAC for DEA in Philly. Um, he, and he rose up from being a Philly street cop. I mean, he's a legend. Um, but Gary and I wrote a piece. He, we wrote the ping pong murders piece because Gary had so much insight into that um, about how it's not just on the streets, how it carries over into the prisons that uh, when the gangs hit the prisons, if there's a, a beef, then all of a sudden it divides up in the prison as well and then carries back out onto the street. So it's an opportunity to collaborate with academics, to collaborate with real law enforcement officers and try to tell the world what's really going on. A lot of the same things that you guys are doing uh, with the RF factor. Tell the real world what uh, what really goes on behind the scenes. One, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we spoke about prosecutors and and things that can be done, uh, particularly with the pillars. Policing is changing. Um, in response to 
what's happening in, uh, in our current times. What advice and insight do you have for policing? And poli- or I should say more, or less, uh, more, more importantly for police chiefs, because we see a huge turnover in police chiefs. Chiefs are coming in to positions and they're dealing with issues that we've described earlier. What advice do you have for them? So you guys remember when being a police chief meant that you were in, uh, in office for the next 20 years. Um, it was a great job. Uh, and it's not anymore. Now it's like more like being an NFL coach. What have you done for me lately? What do this year's stats look like? And by the way, we must, just might overrule everything you do and you can either quit or be fired. Free um, shelf life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for police chiefs, um, what I always tell them is the three keys to um, keeping order are the police chief, the mayor, um, and the chief prosecutor. If you can get those three people aligned, you actually can control violent crime. And the folks there, um, and I, Seattle, or not Seattle, Seattle, <laughs> not Seattle, San Diego is a great example. They have a moderate district attorney who understands violent crime very well, and, and, under, and she came up you know, through the ranks. They've got a police chief who came up through the ranks and knows it all. And they've got a mayor, they've had mayors who understood that you should leave it to the police chief and the prosecutor to work it out because they understand crime. As a result, San Diego is the safest of the 10 biggest cities in the United States. Um, So I always tell police chiefs, one, you need to get a good mayor and get a good chief prosecutor and have a good dialogue with them. If you guys are on the same page, you're in good shape. If you're not, Either one of those two could end your career. And then you've got to pick. I always said the most important decisions that police chiefs make are who they choose for their command staff and who they hire for their department. Because you are going to be stuck with your hires, you guys know, for the next 20 to 25 years. So you better hire good people. And your command staff, your command staff needs to be able to figure out what you would do if you were there in every situation and carry out what that commander's intent is. Um, because you can't be there in every situation, which is why you pick them. Um, so that's sort of the common sense advice that I give to police chiefs. And there are a lot of great police chiefs out there. And unfortunately, a lot of the best of them are looking around and realizing it's going to take 10 years, 15 years to fix where we are now. And they're moving to the sidelines, which is a real shame. Yep. Hit the nail on the head. So I really worry about the young cops. Um, I don't, you know, I know so many multi-generation law enforcement families, um, you know, who every generation either went into policing or went into the federal agencies. And now they're telling their kids, the next generation, don't go into policing. Don't go into law enforcement. It's not safe. You won't be appreciated. And, you know, those folks, they they handled so much and were the sort of the conscience of the organizations. And I worry about losing them. And I worry about the young cops not being used to talking to people. They text everybody. Um, we had a running joke that pretty soon we're going to have a cop pull somebody over, run the plate, find out the phone number, and then text the person in the car. Do you know why I pulled you over? 
<laughs> you got to talk to people. That's what law enforcement's all about. When I first started, I was walking the beat, walking the beat in the projects. Today's National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, I believe. So in appreciation for, for law enforcement, what can we do to change that in, in terms of, uh, you know, making this, this vocation uh, something much more appealing than, than, as you've described, than some field? I mean, when you have uh, folks that are, are on the job and don't want to push their kids to it, that's a problem. How, how do we change that? Uh, I mean, number one, the media has to come off this kick that every cop is evil. Um, I, I would say 99.9% of the cops I work with were honest to a fault, upright, law-abiding, um, who only wanted to do this job because they wanted to protect society. Um, so are there some bad apples that have to be rooted out? Absolutely. Um, but the media has to understand and project that the police are there to protect society um, and that we have to stop demonizing the police. The other thing that really has to happen is the police unions have to um, have to take responsibility. They have driven us into places that are not good. Um, they are automatically reactively against any good change. Um, and I mean, they're driven by money and politics. I understand that, but we have to have some better police union leaders step up and understand that the world is changing. This isn't 1950 anymore. And we have to adapt to the technology. We have to adapt to the different standards. Um, and you know, one thing I always talked about in officer involved shootings was very simple thing. If you've shot a civilian and they're dead on the street and you couldn't revive them, well, two things. One is I want your officers after they've shot somebody to immediately start applying um, first aid because it sends the message. We didn't want to kill this person. Um, we didn't want to shoot them. We'll do everything we can to save them. But if they're dead on the street, cover up the body. Um, you don't know yet whether the person that was shot was in a mental health crisis, really was a bad guy. Um, uh, this could have been a mistake. You don't know, but I guarantee you, even if it was a bad guy, they've got friends and family who are good people show respect to the body. Um, and the, we've gotten pushback from the police unions about some of the simplest things that the police chiefs tell us, no, these are good things. They would help. Um, and the police chiefs know who their bad apples are and would like to get rid of them. And the police unions keep putting them back. This is a real problem. And this is part of the thing that drives the lack of confidence in the public. So I know some great police union leaders. Some of my favorite favorite guys are police union leaders, but there are some, some ones out there who are regressive to say the least. You know, Tom, uh, th this has been, this has been uh, enlightening. Um, I think you'll find that Ray and I are in lockstep with everything you've said. Um, for the sake of uh, of focusing in on the key takeaways from today, because we'd like to get you back on again, because uh, you have an important message to to 
to get out and, and we want to help. But in closing today, if you could close with those four pillars, um, we want to make sure that uh, that's the thing that our listeners take away today from this broadcast. Sure. The four pillars. If you want to cut homicides across the nation, here's what prosecutors and police need to do. First pillar, crime concentration. Crime is heavily concentrated in just a few people, just a few locations, and very specific times of the year and times of the day. Concentrate on those people, those places, and those times, and you will lock up the right people. Second, you need the second pillar is to use drug investigations as a source of intelligence. Drug investigations will lead you to the people who are committing crimes and will allow you to solve homicides. They'll also allow you to solve burglaries and armed robberies, but specifically will allow you to solve homicides because when a homicide happens on the street, it's not a nun and the Pope and a rabbi who witnessed it. It's a bunch of drug folks. And with the right leverage and intelligence from your drug operations, you'll be able to solve those homicides and stop ping pong murders from happening. The third pillar is precision policing. You now know where the crime concentration is and you have your drug intelligence about who's committing these offenses and where the crimes are occurring. Well, focus in like a laser Bring your law enforcement assets in to take out those most dangerous people in the most dangerous places at the most dangerous times. That will have the biggest impact. And the fourth pillar is police and prosecutors work together in what's called vertical prosecution. Right from the moment the crime happens, or ideally even before it happens, so they are moving in lockstep from the crime happening to conviction. And you will see not only better convictions and better investigations, you will see that the integrity of the investigation is protected throughout and that the police and prosecutors get along a lot better and are more efficient in their work because both have things to add. Uh, police have things to add all the way through trial. Prosecutors have something to add beginning right from the crime scene. And if they work together and you work those four pillars together, you will bring the homicide rate down. Now, one thing I should say is if you knock even one of those pillars out, then it won't work. And we will continue to see increased homicides. So those four pillars need to work together. And if they work together, we'll do the same thing that we did starting in the 1990s, where we dropped homicide rates and violent crime rates down until it was safe to walk from one end of New York City to the other. Um, and we can return to that level. It's just going to take work. Over to you, Ray. Tom, we can't thank you enough for coming on. And, and Pete's right. We, we'd love to have you back. Uh, but in the meantime, where can our listeners find you? Uh, I know you, you write, I think uh, you said City Journal. I've read your articles there. Can you tell us about uh, where folks can find you? So uh, I do write for City Journal for the Manhattan Institute. Um, I have uh, appeared in the Inquirer and the, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal recently because all of these are very hot issues. Um, and, uh, and then my substack is Gunfire and Tears. Um, and then I'm also in private practice at, uh, at Gaza and Hogan. 
um, where we do very complex litigation and look at a lot of this stuff. Um, so hopefully I'm trying to help, uh, help law enforcement get over this very rough period um, where we all are in the United States right now. Tom, again, thank you for coming on and uh, looking forward to speaking to you again real soon. All right. Thanks. A pleasure, you guys. Thanks so much, Tom. Absolutely.